seated. I invite you to open with me now in God's Word to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, our scripture text today will be verses 1 through 8. For those that are visiting us, we have been in a study of the book of Revelation uh, together. Uh, In in this consecutive study, we come today to Revelation chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. Uh, You will recall that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we were shown this glorious scene of heavenly worship. In chapter 5, there was none to take the scroll and to open its seals, but one only, and that is the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. He alone is worthy to take this scroll of God's purposes in human history and to open its seals. And it is the opening of those seals that we come to now in Revelation chapter 6. In our uh, study today, we are going to consider the opening of the first four out of those seven seals. And in the opening of these four seals we will see revealed for us four different horses and their riders. Well, let's now uh, turn to God's word. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked. And behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold... A pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we uh, turn now to you and we acknowledge afresh that the book of Revelation is given to us as your inspired word, 
it is uh, profitable unto us for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, uh, that the man of God would be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And Lord, we pray that your word would have this profound divine effect in our lives even today. O oh Lord, equip your people through the proclamation of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, it seems that we live in strange and uh, difficult days. Uh, we uh, are coming off of a pandemic that has lasted uh, over a couple of years. Uh, in this last year, we have seen the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and the takeover of that nation by militant Islamists. Uh, we experience the continued workings of a madman who is the dictator of North Korea. And we uh, consider the worldwide damage that he uh, could potentially accomplish. We have experienced in the last few months an awful war in the Ukraine uh, at the uh, behest of a power-loving, uh, imperialistic uh, man. Uh, we uh, have experienced economic difficulties in our own nation, a rate of inflation that we've not seen for uh, for decades. Uh, just in the last few weeks, we have once again experienced uh, tragic public shootings that have lost or that have led to a tragic loss of, of life, one thing after another, it seems, in the days in which we live, what is happening in the world around us. Well, what is happening in the world around us really isn't that new. The kinds of things that we have just mentioned have been the things which have marked this world throughout all of human history. And indeed, in the book of Revelation, we are given in the verses that we read a description of the various things that we have just spoken of. Two thousand years ago, the Apostle John was given this vision while on the island of Patmos, and the things which the Lord revealed to him are the very things which have been experienced throughout all of human history and which are being experienced even in the world uh, today. And that's what I want us to consider, uh, really in the revelation of these four horsemen uh, that we find in Revelation uh, chapter 6. We're going to uh, consider this passage really under four different points. We're going to spend most of our time under the first point, uh, and then three others as well. And the first of those points is that we ought to expect a great suffering and tragedy uh, in this present age. Uh, then secondly, uh, we are going to see uh, that, our, um, that suffering and tragedy come as a result of human sin. Uh, thirdly, that God is sovereign over this world of suffering and tragedy. And then lastly, that Christ's redemption is the only answer uh, to this world's suffering and tragedy. Those four points that we ought to expect great suffering and tragedy in this present age, that suffering and tragedy come as a result of human sin. Uh, thirdly, that God is sov sovereign over this world of uh, 
suffering and tragedy. And then lastly, that Christ's redemption is the only answer to this world's suffering uh, and tragedy. Those four points, first of all, that we ought to expect great suffering and tragedy in this present age. Uh, These eight verses that we just read earlier are eight verses which uh, reveal for us the opening of four seals. Four seals which open the scroll of God's purposes for all of human history. And as each one of these four seals are opened, four different horses and their riders are introduced. A white horse and its rider, followed by a red horse and its rider, followed then by a black horse and its rider, and then a pale horse and its rider. Now, the background for these horsemen is found in the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1 actually featured horsemen who patrolled the earth for God. And then in Zechariah chapter 6, the prophet wrote of four chariots whose colors mirror those of Revelation chapter 6, who went out into the four corners of the earth to impose God's will on his enemies. And so that Old Testament background is in view now for the vision that is given in Revelation chapter 6. And that number 4 is a number which indicates uh, universality. And so these four horsemen represent uh, the kind of various calamities which will occur in the world in which we live. Now it's important as we look at these four things that we realize that these things, first of all, are not confined to some period of tribulation just prior to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather they are describing what happens throughout all of human history. And similarly, these uh, uh, these tribulations that are revealed aren't successive, meaning that it's not that one begins only when the previous one ends, that this is giving us some kind of a sequence of events. And it's especially not giving us a sequence of events that match up one-to-one to to specific events uh, in human history. But rather, the opening of these seals, the riding of these horsemen, represent the various kinds of calamities which happen throughout all of human history. And so what are these four horsemen? that are revealed in Revelation chapter 6. Well, the first of them is the white horse and its rider. Verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, uh, some commentators understand this white horse not as referring to a disaster, but rather as representing the victorious Lord Jesus, going forth powerfully to conquer souls and to bring them into his kingdom. And people who believe that uh, um, point as a reference, uh, on the one hand, to Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 through 13, where we receive in that uh, vision a white horse, one sitting on it who is called faithful and true, who in righteousness judges and makes war. And we are told in verse 13 that he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. It's a clear reference, as we're going to see when we get to Revelation 19, 
to our victorious, conquering Lord Jesus, who has established his kingdom and who is bringing souls into it. Others, uh, people would point as well to Psalm 45, which is a royal psalm depicting the Lord Jesus as a victorious conqueror. And similarly, people would say that this rider who is wearing white, uh, or who is on a white horse, is on, it, the white symbolizes uh, holiness and purity. And of course, that speaks of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now, this truth of the victorious spread of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus establishing his kingdom is a glorious biblical truth. It's a truth that we should delight in. Uh, nonetheless, I am not convinced that that is what is being taught here. Uh, and, for several, and there are several good commentators who believe that. Uh, this is an area where people are, are split. But I don't believe, I, I don't think that, I'm not persuaded that that's the case, uh, really for a number of different reasons. Uh, the chief reason is this. It is that in our passage here, the white horse is described in a very similar fashion to the red, black, and pale horses. And it seems that the four are working together to accomplish similar aims. And so just as the first four trumpets and the first four bowls, as we will see later in Revelation, represent parallel judgments, so do, I believe, the first four horsemen. I think it would be incongruous to say that the white horse represents salvation, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the other three represent suffering and punishment. Another reason is, is that there are significant differences between the white horse of Revelation 19 and the white horse uh, and the rider who is found here. For example, in Revelation 19, the rider is described as wearing many diadems. Uh, but here he has, and it's a different Greek word, the laurel wreath of a conqueror. And that's just an indicator that these are two separate visions, two separate parts of this vision with separate purposes, and we don't necessarily need to conflate what is found in Revelation 19 with what is found here in Revelation 6. And just one other reason, it is, it is this, that simply that the color white doesn't only indicate holiness and purity. It also can represent the victorious warrior, such as Roman conquerors who wore white in their triumphal parades. And similarly, a bow was a weapon of violent uh, warfare. And so I think those things fit with the way that I'm about to interpret this white horse and its rider. So I am persuaded, again, along with a number of other various good commentators, that the white horse and its rider here represent various warlords and power-hungry conquerors who have marched across the stage of human history. It speaks here of this white horse and its rider coming out conquering and to conquer. And that indicates a kind of... Uh, uh, intention, a lust for power and domination. He wears a crown, but it's a crown of a kind of despotic rule. And the white horse that he rides is a horse of victory and of conquest. So I think this is pointing here, really, to what we have seen throughout human history, power-hungry, imperialistic warlords. 
who have brought thus great suffering in this world. We could think of Alexander the Great, or Attila the Hun, or Napoleon, or Hitler, or to speak of current events in the world in which we live, Vladimir Putin. We think of the suffering that has been caused throughout this world by the lust for power. How many wars have been started? How many lives have been lost with that underlying motive of power? And we can speak of this lust for power not only on grand national scales, but also on smaller scales. A lust for power in the world of business or in the world of politics. A lust for power within marriage. And what kind of uh, hostility, what kind of damage sometimes uh, this has caused in the world in which we live. So I think it's really a revelation of that kind of conqueror. That's what the white horse and its rider is. Well, let's move on now. The red horse and its rider. We find this in verses 3 and 4. There we're told that out came another horse, which is bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This, I believe, is speaking here about war and about bloodshed, and about murder, which often follows in the wake of a lust for power. Now, some commentators point out that in verse 4, the word there that's used for slay is a word that is used primarily in Scripture of the killing of Christians. And so this may speak especially of the killing of of Christians for their faith, leading to the martyr's cry that we're going to see next week in verses 9 through 11. But I think there's even more than that that's being referred to here. The universal nature of these four horsemen point to more than the suffering of just Christians, but rather speaking of the violence and the kind of warfare, the kind of murder that there is throughout the whole world. And don't we have so many examples of this? Places where there is civil war, or genocide. I mean, how many different genocides have there been uh, over the course of these last decades and centuries, and certainly over the millennia? In our own day and age, we have school shootings. We have the senseless murder of the, of the unborn. Uh, we live in a day of violent warfare, of the taking of life. And instead of peace, Between man and man, there is killing and destruction. And what heart-rending tragedy this is. It's the red horse and its rider. The third horse is the black horse and its rider. We find this in verses 5 and 6. Behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Well, what kind of suffering and tragedy is this referring to? Well, it's speaking to that of poverty. And especially poverty in days of famine, where there is a scarcity of food and inflation, which makes meeting basic necessities uh, very difficult. A denarius, which is referred to here, was one day's wage for a common laborer. 
And here it's saying that one denarius would buy you one quart of wheat, which was enough for one person to consume in a day. And so here suddenly a person using every cent that he makes working to buy just enough food for himself. What about his wife and his children who are also depending on him for food? And so that's why it says, well, three quarts of barley. So we can't buy the wheat. So we're going to buy the coarser, cheaper grain, barley, in order to have enough to feed my family. That's what's going on here. But you can't survive or you can't afford much more than much more than that. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's the point uh, here. Um, this is speaking of days of famine, not complete starvation, but days of poverty and of famine with people barely sliding by, barely making it one day to the next, trying just to survive uh, to, the, uh, to the next day. And all the while it says, do not harm the oil and wine. That is the, the wealthy who have the oil and wine, seem to continue to be wealthy and don't have any trouble. Don't we find that in our world today? Sometimes there's the very poor just scraping by where there are others who are extraordinarily wealthy who don't seem to have any trouble. Why? What's going on? Dear friends, this poverty is a living reality for so many in the world in which we live. In our own country, we have certainly faced Uh, rising inflation, all of us have felt the effects of that. Uh, When you go into the grocery store, you try to buy gas at the pump, or if you're in the market for a new home, or any such thing. Well, dear friends, it does have an effect. How much more of an effect it's had throughout different times of uh, human history. Uh, uh, I tried to look up some periods in human history that have had uh, extraordinary inflation. We're told that in Hungary, just after World War II, prices doubled for a period of time every 15 hours. In Zimbabwe, in recent history, they went through a period where prices doubled every day. In war-torn Yugoslavia in the 1990s, they experienced 50% yearly inflation. Could you imagine living in that kind of context where you truly are wondering where the next day's food is going to come from. And savings that you had acquired through the course of your life, gone, evaporated in just, in just a moment. What difficulty there is in the world in which we live. Extraordinary poverty. And that's what this black horse represents. But then there's one more horse, and this is the pale horse and its rider. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Behold, a pale horse, its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of uh, the earth. Uh, The word here for pale is the word chloros in the Greek. It refers to a kind of greenish, yellowish color that we might associate with death. You know, we say about somebody, you look like death warmed over. Okay. We actually get the word chlorine from this, uh, from this Greek word. But this is referring here to this, this rider of death is referring to lives that are taken 
death that comes in the kind of tragic, senseless ways that we've been speaking of, by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, by wild beasts of the earth. And it it comes to a fourth of the earth. And so its destruction doesn't touch everyone, but the point is, is that there are large numbers of people. And don't we experience that in history? Whole populations, large segments of populations that are suddenly gone through uh, these seemingly senseless uh, means. The reality of death and the sorrow and tragedy that it all is. Is the Bible out of touch with reality? Does the Bible know nothing of the world in which we live? Does it speak of just some fantasy world out there? And the answer, of course, is no. That what the Bible here speaks of is the very thing which we experience today and in which human societies throughout the whole course of history have experienced. The Bible knows. God's Word tells us truth about the world in which we live. Sometimes I hear people say something like this. Well, I once had faith in God. But then I experienced X, Y, Z, terrible tragedy. You know, I I saw horrific bloodshed. I I experienced something that was just, just awful. And I lost all my faith in God as a result. Right? That's a common narrative that we hear. Well, if that's the case, then your faith was in something or someone other than the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible has said all along that these things are true in the world in which we live. That this is part of life in this world. That the life that God rules and reigns over is that there is heartbreaking, terrible calamity. Unspeakably horrible suffering and tragedy that we can't make sense of often. And that's part of life in this world. Just read through your Bibles. Read the life of Job. That's what he experienced. Jesus himself said, in this world you are going to have tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 tells us of four horsemen. And so that is the kind of suffering and tragedy which we should expect. Don't, Don't let it take you off guard. This is the suffering and tragedy that we should expect. But now secondly, and more briefly, in these last three points, I want us to see now secondly that suffering and tragedy come as a result of human sin. Suffering and tragedy come as a result of human sin. Each of these riders and their horsemen are described. And the kind of suffering and tragedy that we have uh, described for us here are those things that are, as it were, all tied up with the reality of human sin. Uh, What these verses are describing involve the work of human agents in this world with real wills, and and it's describing for us how it all unfolds on the pages of, of human history. And I want to say this, that that 
all suffering in this world ultimately can be traced back to human sin. And in a variety of different ways. Some suffering comes as a direct result of our own sin. Right? We make sinful choices. We rely on alcohol. We get drunk and we do something damaging or hurtful. We get angry at somebody and that person and it creates a barrier in that relationship. A lot of the suffering and tragedy we experience comes as a result of our own sinful choices, right? But also, there's other sources as well. Some of the suffering, and tra- uh, suffering that we experience, some of the calamity that we experience, comes as a result of the sinful actions and choices of others, right? A powerful oppressor oppressing somebody else. Well, the oppressed experiences the fruit of that person's sinful activity. So sometimes the suffering we experience comes as a result of some, comes as a direct result of somebody else's sinful action. Well, another way that suffering comes is suffering sometimes comes into our lives as a result of living in a world under the curse. What we call natural disasters. Disease Things like that. Why are these things in the world? Well, it's because we live in a world that is under the curse. Why is it under the curse? It's under the curse because of human sin. That's why. And so even those things which might not be able, might not be traced directly to one person's sin, nonetheless are because we live in a sinful world under the curse because of the fall. And yet other instances of suffering come as a result of God's judgment against human sin. Okay, and so uh, the things that we experience all in one way or another can be traced back uh, to to human sin. And usually it's a mixture of those four things that I've just said. It's some some combination uh, of them. But that ought to help us to recognize that the great problem with this world and the cause of all heartache, tragedy, and despair is this world's sin and rebellion against God. That's the fundamental root problem with this world. It's mankind's sin and rebellion against God. Sometimes when things go badly, Some people, the first thing they want to do is to blame God. God, it's your fault. Well, no. If you really look at it, it's the result of human sin in this world. Or other people want to say, I believe that people are basically good. It's just a few bad apples that have ruined the whole bunch. Are you really saying that all of the suffering and tragedy in this world is a result of just a few bad apples among people that are basically good at heart, genuinely good people. Well, no, the answer to that also is no. The problem is, is the problem of human sin, which is deeply rooted in the heart of all people. That we are a people who are depraved in rebellion against the living God. And that is the root problem in this world. Romans 3 verses 9 through 18 give the best explanation of this when it says there what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that 
all, both Jews and Greeks, in other words, all humanity, are under sin. As it is written, and now Paul in Romans 3 gives us just a stringing together of one Old Testament text after another to describe the real fundamental problem of the world in which we live. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. And so I simply ask you that when you hear of those tragic things that are going on in the world in which we live, as you hear daily reports from the Ukraine, as you hear a report of another shooting somewhere, where does your mind first of all run? I hope it runs to this, that you say, oh, how I hate sin. Oh, how I hate sin wherever it is found. I hate what sin has done to humanity. I hate what sin has done in my own heart because I see the seeds of these, own, of these same sins in the heart myself. Oh, how I hate sin. Do you see sin in all of its blackness? Do you hate it wherever it is found? Do you long for it to be gone? Suffering and tragedy come as a result of human sin. This moves us thirdly now to this point. It is that God is sovereign over this world of suffering and tragedy. That God is sovereign over this world of suffering and tragedy. And this is one of the big lessons that we have here in Revelation 6. Do not forget that Revelation 4 and 5 came before Revelation 6. That we have, in the, at the same time as it were, that these horsemen are being sent out It is true that there is one who sits on the throne of heaven who is receiving the infinite praise and worship of countless angels and of the redeemed saints. And there is a lamb who is worthy to take this scroll and to open all of its seals. And this lamb is the one who is opening each one of these seals. The lamb opens the seal. And then after the Lamb opens the seal, we're told that it is one of the four living creatures who with each one of them says the words, Come! It is the living creature, that angelic being who is summoning the rider. And the rider is summoned. And he goes forth. And you'll notice that in each case as well, that what the rider does is under the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 2. We're told its rider had a bow and a crown was what? Was given to him. Or verse 4, that its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Or in verse 8, that they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. 
And so again, the Lord himself is not the author of human sin. But it all is under the sovereign direction and providence of almighty God. That's the teaching of Holy Scripture. It's the exact thing that our confession of faith teaches as well. In the chapter on providence, if you want to turn there, you can. It's found on uh, page 851 of your hymnals. But in the section on providence, there it says in uh, chapter 5 and and paragraph 4 of our confession that the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Do you see what that is saying? And I think what it's saying is absolutely extraordinary. It is telling us that God is sovereign over absolutely everything. And at no point whatsoever is his sovereignty or his rule compromised. And yet, at the same time, there is such a thing as human responsibility for their action. Now, how do we piece all of this together? How, how, how are we to fully understand this? How both of these things are true? Dear friends, I can't explain it to you. All I can tell you is that the Bible clearly reveals that both of them are. The Bible clearly reveals that both of them are. And I am not asked to solve this puzzle. In fact, God's ways are not subject to the limits of our human understanding. But rather what we are called to do is to rejoice and to bow the knee to this one who has all things, even the wickedness of human people, under his sovereign control. Isn't that marvelous? That it is not Vladimir Putin who ultimately sits on the throne of this universe. That it wasn't Hitler. That it isn't militant Islamists in our day. That it isn't the U.S. Congress That it isn't computer hackers somewhere who sit on the throne of the universe. That it isn't you and that it isn't me. But praise God that it is the living God of heaven and earth. That though this world seems at times out of control, it is not. Because he rules and he reigns. That this God... The God of our redemption is the God who rules over all things. And this means that he is working together through human history for his own glory and for the redemption of his church. That though there is human wickedness, that that will not trump 
the purposes and plans of God to glorify His name and ultimately to save His people. That His will will be done and that He is working through all of human history. And so when the darkest and blackest of things are revealed as they are in Revelation 6, these horses and their riders that are bringing unspeakable suffering in their wake, yet even what they do is at the behest of a sovereign, glorious God. What good news that is. What does it mean for you and for me? It means that we can go on continuing to trust this God and to seek to do His work in the world with confidence. No matter what is happening in the world in which we live, we can trust Him and we can seek to obey Him. And nothing moves us from that. Because he is the sovereign. So we trust in his word. Even when days of extraordinary difficulty come, you can continue to trust in him. And you continue each day, put one foot in front of the other, doing his will, because he is sovereign. He is sovereign. But this moves us now, finally, under the fourth thing. The fourth thing that we want to say is this. It is that Christ's redemption is the only answer to this world's suffering and tragedy. Christ's redemption is the only answer to this world's suffering and tragedy. Now, Christ's redemption is not mentioned explicitly in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. But it is mentioned in lots of other places throughout the book of Revelation and in the rest of Scripture itself. You know, who is the one who is opening these seals? Well, it is none other than the Lamb of God who by his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, tongue, and people. Revelation 5, 9. It is this one who is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world who is the one who is opening each one of these seals. And what's the significance of that, that the Lord Jesus was the one who was slain? What that refers to is the fact that God sent his own son into this world, not some other world, but into this world with all of its tragedy, with all of its suffering, into a world that is marked by the curse. And he sent his own son into this world to deal with the root problem of it all which is the problem of our sin. And you think of it, our sin, with all of its guilt, with all of the consequences, with all of the damage that has been brought in the wake of human sin, our sin was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He took it all upon himself. And he suffered the wrath of Almighty God, which your sin and my sin deserved, in order to free us from that prison of our sin. By his death, he has taken away all of our guilt so that we are no longer uh, under the punishment of our sin. And what is more, he has also delivered us from sin's dominion in our life. So that by the Holy Spirit, he is increasingly freeing us. And so, dear friends, as you and I walk through this world 
which is marked by warfare and by imperialism and by poverty and hunger and disease and pestilence and death. As you and I walk in the midst of this world, if you have faith in this one who has bore all of your sins, you are walking through this world as a child of the living God under his special protection and care. And the Bible says that nothing at all in all of creation shall separate you from that love. Do you you know those verses out of Romans 8? Think of them in light of all that we've looked at with these four horsemen. Romans 8, verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Which one of these horsemen shall get between you and your Savior? And it says, no, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that if you are in Jesus Christ, you are in the one place of safety. I can remember uh, when, I was, when I was a little child, one time we were in the car in the midst of a lightning storm, and I was scared. I was really scared. And I can remember my parents saying, actually, to be in the car is one of the, one of the safer places that you could, that you could be. And I, I think that's true. I don't know. I guess I've not followed up. But it, all that to say is, do you know what assurance that brought to my heart to say, okay, we're in a place of safety, a storm around us. I'm in a place of safety. Well, dear friends, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what storms are brewing around you, you are in the place of ultimate and everlasting safety. Because it is this Lord Jesus who is ultimately going to bring you finally home to himself. And in that new heavens and new earth, you are going to live in a land and be in the presence of a Savior where none of these four horsemen will ever come again. Revelation chapter 21 is the one that gives us that very promise. Because there it says at the end, uh, Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That, dear friends, is the answer to all of this world's tragedy and suffering. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and the everlasting salvation that he brings. Praise the Lord for this. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we do pray that we would be those who look to the Lord Jesus, thankful, O Lord, for the salvation which you have brought to us in him. Lord, give us confidence amidst this world's 
trials and tribulations, amidst the suffering, Lord, that we would look to you, the sovereign God, and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, realizing the full and free salvation that you have brought to us in him. O Lord, our God, do this, we pray. Lord, if there be any here who do not know the Lord Jesus, O Lord, would you bring them to their knees, that they would acknowledge the greatness and glory of what you have done in providing salvation for us through him, that they would look in faith to this glorious Savior. Please do this, we pray. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name.